Hello, welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Radley. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. There are a range of legal issues that have been kicking around uh, over the past few uh, few months, and my guest today uh, is, is well-placed to talk about them. We've, we've seen uh, developments in the, issue, the case of Julian Assange. We're also seeing uh, conversations about the presumption of innocence and how that has been looked at by you know people outside the court system within the legal system and also the use of public interest immunity uh, by government in legal cases. My guest today is Greg Barnes, who's a, a SC, who is well known to many people as a, as a barrister and a, and a legal advocate uh, for a range of causes over the, over the past few years. Rather than listen to me warble on, get it to Greg on now. Greg, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Now, it, it, the Assange manner is in an interesting phase at the moment, isn't it? Uh, where, where are things at right now? So just to put on the record, I'm an advisor to the Australian Assange campaign. Um, the case is um, in a couple of theatres at the moment, really three. Uh, firstly, in the UK, we're waiting on a judge to decide whether or not uh, an appeal can be heard um, by uh, Assange in relation to the extradition. We expect that judgment any day. Um, if that happens, if that appeal happens, then the appeal will be heard sometime early next year. In the United States, um, there's, of course, the development of the New York Times, plus some other newspapers around the world now putting some pressure on the Biden administration to withdraw the extradition request and drop the charges. I think most significantly in terms of an audience here, uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese last week indicating that he had lobbied officials of the Biden administration. This is the first indication we've had that he has followed up on his promise, uh, which made which he made earlier in the year, and that was that he thought the Assange case had gone long enough and needed to be brought to an end. So there have been significant developments, uh, and there'll be further developments to come, uh, no doubt, between now and Christmas and into the new year. Um, and certainly all of those developments indicate that um, there is now, and rightly so, real pressure on the Biden administration to allow Julian to return to his family. From a point of view of legal practice, though, this is a fairly this has been a fairly complicated and long-running case. What's it been like looking at it as a as a legal practitioner? Well, look, it has been complicated only in the sense that an extradition request to the United States has been fought vigorously by Julian through his lawyers, and rightly so, because it would have meant, and, and it would mean, that he goes to the United States, he is incarcerated in very, very difficult conditions, faces the likelihood of an almost certain conviction in relation to charges, which would see him go to jail for the rest of his life and more. Um, and so uh, in that sense, it's been complex. It's also been complex because it's a clear infringement of freedom of speech. Julian Assange uh, was publishing material clearly in the public interest and including uh, the infamous collateral murder video where you see US military murdering uh, civilians on the streets of Baghdad um, in Iraq. Uh, and it's clearly in the public interest for, that, for those matters to be seen by the world community, because nations need to be accountable for their actions. What personal, I guess, what personal sort of goals uh, take on um, on the 
it bothers involved, you know, you can, it, there's a weight on the shoulders of uh, Julian Assange and his wife and, 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 and the family. But what, how does that impact on, on, on the advisor that's going to sort of try and steer a chase at, at a time when there's a, the range of stresses that are, that are being brought to bear? Well, look, I think that there's certainly been the greatest stress, of course, is on Julian and his family, his father, John Shipton, his brother, Gabriel, his mother, all here in Australia have been subjected to enormous stress over now uh, a decade or more. Uh, and, of course, his advisors who've worked assiduously on this case. But the main issue, of course, is that you've got a man who's got two young children uh, and and uh, his wife, Stella, uh, waiting for him to be released so that he can uh, be a member of that family. And that, of course, puts enormous stress uh, each day as every day goes by and you realise that uh, you're not with your family. And that'll, that'll no doubt play out uh, over the next few months um, and we'll see some further developments at what, February or March next year, Greg? Uh, we will, um, and certainly um, we would expect uh, the Albanese government to continue its lobbying efforts uh, in uh, the United States. One of the things that I've noticed you uh, the commenting on on Twitter in recent times, particularly given... Uh, the high-profile matter that had been tried in uh, in Canberra, and then the trial was obviously uh, aborted due to a, a jury uh, jury misbehaving. Uh, the the sort of hit the uh, trial uh, of Bruce Lehrman. and one of the core uh, issues that has played out there is the the presumption of innocence under our sort of legal system. You've expressed concern about it on online, and, and at times probably received comments that to, um, that indicate a misunderstanding of, of the principle. Mm. Um, what are your concerns about how we deal with that um, issue uh, in the broader community yep. when, when a contentious case yep. comes up? Well, the concern is pretty simple. The presumption of innocence is a bedrock fundamental human right enshrined in a range of international treaties. It is a bedrock principle of the rule of law. And what we're seeing is people prepared to jettison it simply to get a particular result uh, or in order to favour one party. And what's frightening about it is that people um, are so prepared to do so. I might say uh, it always interests me that often the people who cry loudest about uh, uh, removing protections, uh, if they are charged themselves or a family member has charged themselves, they want every protection in the book, and rightly so. It is the state's obligation to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt. That's how the system works, and it works that way for a very good reason. Uh, and everybody has the presumption of innocence. That's not something that you can say, oh, well, you don't have it in this particular case or don't have it in that particular case. When it comes to uh, matters uh, such as uh, serious criminal uh, matters, such as murder or rape, uh, it's, again, fundamentally important. And to start to say, oh, well, you've got to shift the onus, you have to go into the witness box to prove your innocence, is really to say, well, let's just throw out the Australian system. And let's move to another system entirely, simply because we want to get a particular result. The I mean, there has been a, an argument that there's a need for some 
reform or some change to um, uh, the way in which evidence is delivered in, in trials like this because of the nature of the offence, um, one of which is uh, the, the replaying of the evidence recorded um, during the, the first trial so that a complainant doesn't have to go through that that process again. Do you have some sympathy with that suggestion? Well, it gets done in most jurisdictions. I was surprised it doesn't happen in the ACT, and I've certainly got no problem with it. In fact, I just finished a case in Western Australia where we had exactly that. We had a trial um, earlier this year. The uh, person making the allegations gave evidence. Uh, the trial didn't proceed because of, uh, I think, because of COVID issues. Uh, we did the trial again later in the year, uh, and that person's evidence from that first trial was used. We could absolutely no problem with that. It happens in every jurisdiction in Australia, and as I say, I was surprised that didn't happen in the ACT, but the ACT should come into line with other jurisdictions. One of the challenges, obviously, with the uh, the Lehman uh, case has been the role played by media and the high-profile nature of that media coverage. Um, there has been a suggestion in 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 conversations, um, and it also it's been reported that it can't happen in the ACT at the moment, but that there should be a, uh, a scope for a judge-only trial, particularly in cases where there's a heightened level of media attention. Uh, what do you see as the, the, the merits and, I guess, disadvantages of that? Well, I think there are only merits. I don't see any disadvantages. The ACT uh, is bound by the Commonwealth Constitution in this regard. The Commonwealth Constitution says that you cannot, if it's Commonwealth matter, uh, you have to have a trial by jury. Um, I think every jurisdiction in Australia now, with the exception, of course, of the ACT, has moved to judge-alone trials. If it's not every jurisdiction, it's almost every one. And for a good reason, because sometimes saturation publicity means you cannot get a fair trial, or there is a big risk that you won't get a fair trial because you just won't be able to find juries who are not influenced. I think a very good example of how judge-alone trials works is the Lloyd Rainey case in Western Australia. Rainey was a lawyer still a lawyer, but he was a lawyer who was accused of murdering his wife. Uh, police um, ran a, a relentless campaign and the media ran a relentless campaign, which was pretty hostile to Rainey. Rainey got a trial by judge alone and was acquitted. And it's a good example of why you need trials by judge alone, because a judge is able to look at the matter dispassionately. Our training tells us that we ignore the media what the media says about a particular person or about the allegations. It is, I think, again, should be a fundamental right that the defendant has. It should be, the prosecution shouldn't have a say about it. Uh, it should be simply that if a person is able to show a court that there is a risk of media, trial by media, having uh, improperly influencing a juror or influencing juries, then that ought to be the end of the matter and it should the trial should be judged alone. Um, there is another uh, prominent case, um, circumstances of which we don't need to get into. Obviously, the whistleblower, David McBride, um, he's changed his defence, uh, or he withdrew his whistleblower defence towards the end of October when the government used um, 
or the government had to sought to use you know public interest immunity for specific evidence. Yeah. Um, as somebody who has practiced law, you know, decades now, um, how difficult does it make it for uh, people defending a charge when uh, a government is able to use uh, a public interest immunity um, to... Sure. To yeah, no, I, I take your point, Tom. Uh, public interest immunity is essentially government throwing a blanket over possible evidence um, to be used in a case. And my experience of certainly since 9-11 and the so-called war on terror, it's been overused. Um, and it's been overused because governments in Australia, particularly the Commonwealth government, notoriously secretive when it comes to these matters. We saw that in the Bernard Collieri case. Uh, public interest immunity ought to be a last resort uh, not something that uh, governments use lightly. Now, they'll say, oh, well, we don't use it lightly. But it is particularly in the context of a, a, a nation where we don't have a Human Rights Act, which enshrines rights to a fair trial and what that right might mean. It's, I think um, there's a greater capacity for public interest immunity to be abused. But essentially the way it works is it says, uh, we don't have to tell you uh, anything about what uh, you say is evidence uh, that you, you want. Uh, because we've got public interest immunity and it would jeopardise uh, security of the Commonwealth uh, to, uh, or, or jeopardise uh, other factors uh, at play and therefore, you know, essentially people end up in trials with half a hand or even one hand tied behind their back. How would a human rights act uh, or a law related to, to, to a series of human rights um, uh, introduced in Australia um, change the situation you've described? Well, I think that a Human Rights Act does allow for the enshrining in law of the right to a fair trial. We already have it at common law, uh, but it is a fundamental human right. And, you know, when you get a human rights perspective brought to bear on these issues, it often means that you can curtail the power of the state and the reach of the state. you think that would make a difference in cases like the Kaliri matter or, or the McBride Well, I think, matter, it, I, right? I think there's no doubt. I think there's no doubt. It would have been interested, interesting to have a look at the Kaliri case in, for example, the Canadian context, whether it would have gone as far as it did um, in the Canadian context, particularly in relation to rights like freedom of speech, etc. So I, I think a Human Rights Act does change the dynamic and it gives greater protections to the individual as opposed to... Uh, well, sorry, it, it does give greater protections to the individual, particularly in that balance between the individual and the state. It, it, uh, one of the core issues with the McBride case uh, and with other cases that we are aware of is uh, not just the issue of the public interest immunity and government secrecy, but also the protection of whistleblowers. Yep. Um, where... Uh, What's the state of play in your view of the the, the whistleblower uh, protection at the moment? Well, whistleblower protections in Australia are inadequate. We've seen that in the Kaleri case. We see it in other cases that are currently before the courts. Again, we don't have a human rights, a piece of human rights legislation which protects whistleblowers. 
Um, and so whistleblowers in Australia are not well protected. They're also the subject of vindictive actions uh, and they play a great price. Uh, that ought not be the case. We ought to be protecting whistleblowers. They are an essential component in a, a well-functioning democracy. And again, they are important in ensuring that the rule of law is not just met in rhetoric, but met in practice. I've been talking to Greg Hans, he's the, um, a barrister and, uh, and a person who's campaigned for, for many years in the area of human rights. He's at the centre of uh, parts of what we're seeing with the Assange case. And he, he got some, as, you, as you've heard, some very firm views on where things need to head. Greg, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Always good to chat.